Along the journey of life, uh, I can definitely tell you I've had a few random jobs here and there, things that maybe I only did at times for experience purposes, but uh, pieces that the Lord used. But one of my favorite jobs I've ever had, by far, and I would do it again in an instant if God gave the opportunity, and that is to coach swimming. I find there's incredible uh, just pleasure and... Uh, I don't know, fulfillment in seeing a kid who can barely move in the water to becoming a world-class athlete. And when I say world-class athlete, one of the girls on our team just became the third fastest female in world history in the fly. Last two Olympics, uh, she swam in. She's probably got one more and then she'll retire. I say all that to open with a story about a swim coach that I've looked up to many years, before many years. And uh, the story starts back, though, not with the coach, but with a lanky kid. The kid was a seven-year-old. And uh, not very, um, uh, at least not very athletic in the eyes of most, but he was sitting in his second grade classroom. I know we have some teachers out there, so when I say what this teacher said in his public school classroom, uh, you'll probably be quite, uh, not offended, maybe you'll be amazed that such comments are made, but the second grade teacher saw this kid who had ADD, ADHD, and any other letters you want to put on him, and she said, uh, she told this young boy, she said, you're never going to amount to anything because frankly... He just didn't pay attention to anything. Well, this kid believed it, and so he lived a very lonely life. His parents had divorced, and he felt quite, um, quite in solitude in what he was pursuing. Well, at nine years old, he found himself in an aquatic center in Baltimore, just swimming, just swimming, not doing anything beyond that, not being coached, not on a team, just swimming. Well, there happened to be a man at the pool that day, and his name was Bob. His name still is Bob. His name was Bob. <laughs> And and Bob was watching this young boy, nine-year-old, swimming. And I know what Bob means when he says he saw something, because I've seen kids that have never won one race in their life, and you say, that is a future national swimmer. He saw something in this little boy. So he found out, who are this boy's parents? Well, he he got the parents together. Again, they were separated, divorced. But he asked, he said, do I have permission to coach your son? I want him on my team. They said, well, if you can deal with his overactivity, as they would claim, then yes, if he agrees, we want him to be on the team. So talk to this young boy, and the young boy was quite thrilled that somebody had taken notice of him. So he started training. Well, Bob was one of those coaches that was very uh, straightforward, and we would say difficult, but actually phenomenal. And what I mean by that is he held him to what he said. So when he gave him a set, and even if that set was, you know, 20 sets of 100 fly, he was going to pull up a chair and stay there until that set was done. And even if the boy complained, he said, I'll stay here all night until you're done. Other times, the boy would come to practice with a bad attitude. He says, go home, think about your attitude, and don't come back until you have a new one. Well, that was their relationship. By the time this boy reached the age of 15 years old, 15, he qualified for the United States Olympic swim team, which is by far, in a way, the best Olympic swim team in the entire world. It's kind of like the, the women's basketball team. There's not another nation close. Swimming's the same thing. There's not a nation close to the United States swim team. He qualified as a 15-year-old. He went down to the Sydney Games, swam a couple events, didn't win any medals, but as a 15-year-old, did quite well, made the quarterfinals. He wasn't done. Went back to Baltimore, trained more with Bob. At the age of 19, he qualified again, this time for the games in Greece in 2004, and he went there and did phenomenally well. In fact, he won six gold medals and two bronze medals. The greatest Olympian at that particular Olympics, he wasn't done. 
He went back home and continued training with Bob. And once again, at the age of 23, he qualified for the games in London. I saw him swim there because my, one of my girls was swimming there. And, sorry, I apologize, not London. Let's go to 2008, Beijing first, before London. In Beijing he went, and that was his greatest Olympics ever, the greatest Olympics anybody has ever had in world history, where he competed in eight events, winning eight gold medals. And if you are not... A swimmer, you don't quite understand what's going on here. But he had 15 to 45 minutes at times to recoup for races where he had just raced other ones, competing against top Olympians of the world, and still he was out touching them. Eight golds. He was not done. Qualified for the Games in London. Again, he goes there. And again, he wins four more gold medals. And, um, and then he continues on. You can follow down in Rio. Again, he won four more down there. A couple golds, a couple silvers. And today... There is no question in anybody's honest mind, if anyone's honest, sorry Usain Bolt, you're not close. The greatest Olympian in the history of our world is a seven-year-old who will never amount to anything, a nine-year-old swimming in a pool where nobody noticed him except a man named Bob Bowman, and of course, we all know his name, Michael Phelps. But you see, as much as that story makes us realize, wow, I'm glad Bob noticed him, and the United States Olympic Committee is glad he noticed him too, <laughs> I want to suggest to you that if we would notice what God sees when he sees you, it would so change your perspective, not only of your own life, but of every life you encounter, that you would be so irreversibly changed that you would walk through airports and be compelled to love people? You would walk into your work office to next week's Monday morning and fall in love spiritually with souls you've seen your whole life? You will look at those who maybe are your greatest um, problems in life and you will look at them and have incredible compassion and longing for them to be saved? I mean, I'll even look at guys that aren't paying attention tonight and I'll say at them how much I love them in just a minute. No, I'm serious, guys. I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm telling you, I look out at you and I don't see what you see. And I guarantee they don't see in themselves what God sees in them. I guarantee that because if they did, they would be glued to the God who so loves them. But they don't see it yet and I think a lot of you don't see it yet. And I'm praying in the next 38 minutes that you get so overwhelmed by the God who so loves you that when we leave here, it will be impossible, impossible to return to life as it was. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word, I'm asking for exactly that. Do what only you can do. And I mean so heavily burden our hearts with your love that when we leave this place, we are in awe of what you think when you think of us and those around us. God, keep me out of the picture and let your son Jesus Christ be the full picture. Glorify his name and I want every soul that doesn't know you to be saved tonight. And for the rest of us that know you, give us more intimacy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, Luke 15, and we're just going to focus in on three verses. Luke 15 is a passage you know well, but you know it well because of what comes after the story, and that's the story of the two prodigal sons. Again, not one, but two. 
because they both did not have a relationship with their father at the beginning. But we're not talking about those boys. We're going to talk about a woman. I figure we've been talking about women and Jesus all week, so let's stick with women and Jesus, and let's look at the life of another precious woman that appears in these verses. Now, in Luke chapter 15, if you notice the first two verses before we read anything else, we get the setting of what's going on. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, what did they do? They grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. All right, well, let's just be fair to these Pharisees and to these scribes. They have good reason for being frustrated. I don't think we understand their frustration, but let's get in there. First of all, we've got sinners and tax collectors. Why do they have a problem with this group? Well, what are sinners? Because we're all sinners, right? All right. Sinner is a category in society. So the obvious is like prostitutes. All right, sure. Sinful practice. But what about shepherds? Shepherds were deemed sinners as well. Why? Their sheep would graze on property that's not their own, right? So they're thieves. So shepherds was a sinful practice as well. You could go to other other areas of society. How about tax collectors? Think about this. Tax collectors. Who controlled the world at that time? Rome. And Rome was a massive empire stretching from modern-day England all the way down to India. So if you think of that kind of area, but imagine a population of, like, Iowa controlling all of that area of the world, you'd be like, okay, Iowa's not going to be able to do it. Exactly. So how did the Romans do it? The money in the pockets of people. They took taxes. And they taxed. I know, you don't like your tax bracket. Whatever it is, you don't like it. I know that. But... Be thankful. You don't pay Roman taxes up to 90%. That's worse than Denmark, guys. That's where my family immigrated from, all right? Even in Denmark, they don't pay 90% taxes, up to 90%. But if I don't pay taxes, what happens? Well, bad thing, especially as a man. A, crucifixion for me, or at the very least, a plundering of my goods, probably taking my wife and whatever they'll do to her, and in addition, my children as slaves. Now, you say, that's bad. Boy, it gets worse than that. How do they find the tax collectors? I'll tell you how they find tax collectors. They look for somebody who's willing to betray their family. And when they find someone willing to betray their family for the sake of money, that is the person collecting taxes. And should they not pay, he will be the one to turn over his own family to death for the sake of a little money. Now, you see why they hate tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus is eating with them. Listen, in our world today, we have so many labels we slap on our world. And let me make this as clear as possible. If you put labels on the world around you, you will never see what God sees when he sees us all. Oh, you say, what kind of labels do I use? Start in politics, my friends. Are you American? You probably have some labels. If somebody says, I'm Republican, I'm Democrat, I'm independent, I didn't vote, whatever it is, you are already putting an entire uh, set of thoughts and values on an individual, and you will not see them as Jesus Christ sees them. You'll see them as some political structure that's absolutely corrupt and unable to save, and that is what you're basing any kind of foundation and importance on. Oh, my friends, are you first an American or a follower of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ sees something drastically different in souls, drastically. And you will miss the love that God has for souls if you see souls through the lens of a political perspective. 
That's not all. We have a lot of other lens we use. We have nationalistic perspectives. We have moral perspectives. Listen, I'm going to tell you straight out whether somebody in our culture today claims some kind of sexual orientation or another one, whether they're from some ethnicity or another one, whether they behave through some moral practices and not others. Uh, That's not my concern. My concern is, do they have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because if they don't, they will be separated for eternity from him. And the only thing that transforms is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the gospel takes root from inside out, those things will change to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not, I'm not bypassing sin. I'm not saying it's okay. My point is the solution for the United States is not a moral perspective. The solution for the United States is not some kind of economic plan. The, 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 the solution for the United States is not more power in the military. The solution for the United States and the world is to know the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. And I will live and I will die on that one foundation. Now, with all that being said, they're mad at Jesus because he doesn't see things the way they see things. They love labels. And Jesus says, I'm not so fond of labels. So can I tell you what I see? And in verses 8 to 10, he's about to tell you what he sees. And what he sees doesn't look much like what they were looking at. Look at verses 8 to 10 very carefully. He tells a story. Or what woman? Pause. They're thinking stuff already. I mean, who is he talking to? He's talking to Pharisees and scribes. You know, the religious leaders in that day had a a prayer. They would pray. This is their prayer, okay? They would say, oh God, thank you that I am not a Gentile. Thank you that I am not a leper. Thank you that I am not a slave. And thank you, God, that I am not a woman. That was their prayer. They literally prayed those four things. So when Jesus starts out a story, or what woman among you, they're not thinking it's going to be a positive story about a woman. What they failed to realize is God is going to be pictured in this woman. Now watch what happens. Or what woman, having ten silver coins and loses one, she, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls to gather her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word, and we can accept it as that. But let's talk about it. When we say what woman having ten silver coins, Jesus is saying, obviously, she loses a coin. She's going to search the house and look for it. And we're thinking, that's not so obvious. Like, why is she? Okay, let's just stop. Stop. We got to ask questions because we read that story and we say, all right, it means that uh, God loves you. He wants to save you. You're valuable and he's looking for you. Good. All right. If if that's your interpretation, then why is it a woman and not a man? Because your interpretation, it makes no difference. Is it important that it's a, a woman and not a man? How about this? 
with your version of that interpretation, I'm not blaming you because you never said that, okay? But if that's your version, why 10 coins? All right, let me just talk to God. God, I know you're a great storyteller and all, but let me give you a little clue. (laughs) You want it more exciting? Not 10 coins. Make it two. (laughs) 50% gone. She's got to look. She doesn't have enough to buy food tomorrow. Like, you know, we can up it up, God. Why 10? Do you think 10's important? Uh, uh, why silver coins? Why not gold coins? Why not bronze coins? Why not some other form of coin? Like, why 10 silver coins? Is that important? Now, let's ask another question. It says she loses it, and clearly there's not light at the time she loses it. So, is it important that she lights a lamp? Because just use some C.S. Lewis logic here, right? If it's in the house, it'll still be in the house when the light comes back. If it's not in the house, it doesn't matter how many lamps you light, you're not finding it because it's not in the house. Does everybody follow that logic? That was kind of simple, right? So why? Why does she have to light a lamp and have the coin back in her possession before the sun comes up? Why? Is that important? Okay, okay, let's ask another question. You see, because when she finds the coin, what does she do? She holds a party. She invites all her friends and neighbors. All right, guys, I lose a lot of things in my life, you know? And uh, right now, I think I got keys in my pocket, or maybe they're already lost. No, I think they're here. All right, so here we go. I lose my keys frequently. It's, I mean, I don't lose them. I misplace them. I don't know where they are, all right? Now, now listen, when I, lo- when I like, misplace my key, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of concerned. I want to find it. I know I can't go anywhere without it. But, but when I find it, yes, I'm thankful. I might even pray and say, thank you, Lord, maybe. But I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't first thing say, ah, I found my key. Ah, first thought, speed dial, I message everyone, WhatsApp, I'm calling my friends, party, my house, 30 minutes. I don't do that. I don't, I don't. Like legitimately, I never do that. I'm happy I found my key, but I'm not calling any party and you're not invited. Listen, she does. She actually does. I have to ask, is that important? I want to suggest to you all of that is extremely important. So let me go and put a little cultural framework on this before we dive into the implications. What if I started this story out with a different phrase for 2018? What woman having a diamond ring? Okay, I'll stop there. What are you guys thinking about? A relationship, right? You're thinking immediately about marriage or engagement. You're thinking about love. And this is a love story. See, in that day, and actually, not only have I researched this, but I found people that still do it, okay? So this is not just, I read it in an archaic textbook. I know people that do this. They have an interesting practice. They'll give out a gift when they get engaged, the man to the woman. And what he gives her is either a bracelet or a necklace, And it will have either 7, 10, or 12 silver coins on it. Now, this is the sign of their relationship. And the thing about these necklaces or bracelets is each coin has a slot. It's not like a bunch that just slide together like my shark tooth necklace. If I added more shark teeth on there, they'd all slide together. No, they each had their spot. So if I'm missing one, it's going to be evident that I'm missing one. And here is the catch of all of this. There was also a tradition in the day that if 
there was a question of fidelity in that relationship even prior to marriage, as Mary and Joseph had, that it would be common for the woman to have a coin removed. Now, if that was the case, it means that somebody who sees her necklace missing a coin that had fallen off could actually ask questions about that relationship, about the validity of it, about the authenticity of it, about the purity of that particular relationship. So think about this. What woman among you, having ten silver coins and loses one, and what does the audience do? Gasp. (gasps) That's the right response. Of course she lights a lamp. Of course she searches diligently. Until... She finds it. And of course she calls her friends to say, I'm not guilty. You thought I was, right? No, it's been, it was under the couch. Like, I, I told you I wasn't. I know you didn't believe me, but let's, let's celebrate. My relationship is intact. Just so the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Well, we're going to see this evening, I'm going to bring it out from another scriptural passage. We're going to see this evening that God's talking about his coins. God's talking about the coins that show his relationship, the relationship he desires. And we're going to see, ultimately, who are those coins. But I'm not going to get there yet because the word of God is going to have to make that point, not me. So pause. I want to ask you a different question. Here's my question. Why is it that we don't see what God sees. I'm going to tell you in a minute what I believe God sees when he looks at you, okay? And, and I think it'll blow your mind because every time I think of it, I'm literally just like, I want to cry over you. And some people like get, get weirded by how often I tell them I love them. And I'm like, I, I have to because like you don't even know what I'm thinking right now. Like, I don't know if you've noticed. It's going to freak some of you out. It's totally okay. Just deal with it. I stare into your eyes. Maybe you've noticed that. Maybe you haven't. Like, I'm not just looking at you, right? When I look at you, I look in your eyes. There's a reason for that. You can ask me later fully the reason, but there's a reason for that, and it's actually really exciting. But hold on. Why don't we see what God sees? Two things I'm going to give you. Uh, Suggestions. The first thing is this. When you walk into a store, if it is a store that's well-maintained, what does every item have on it? A price tag. So the first thing is a price tag mentality. Now, I know we don't intentionally do this, but we do it subconsciously. When we look at souls, based on whether it be color of their skin, their educational level, whether it be the titles that they choose to wear, like labels I mentioned earlier, whether it be the relationships they're in, whether they're single, married, separated, divorced, whatever it is, what we will do is based on their socioeconomic, based on their ethnic, based on all these things, we assign a value to that soul. I know you don't want to say you do, but I know I do. I walk down the street, I look in the airport, people sitting around, and I'm telling you, I place values on different people, and it is wicked, it's sinful, I'm wrong, but I do it. And I want to challenge you and ask you, why is it that we do that when God completely looks at us a different way? So, pause with that. One thing, price tag mentality gets in the way. Another thing, I call it the pocketbook mentality. Uh, obviously I'm a, I'm a male and I don't tend to carry a pocketbook per se. I carry what we call a wallet, but they both start with a P. So price tag and pocketbook, we'll stick with that. Okay. But wallet, see in this wallet, it might be hard for you to believe, but I actually have a limited quantity of money. 
I don't know how much I got in there, but it is a limited quantity. That's what I know. Now, if I have $100 in here, and I decide that out of those 100, I'm going to start out by giving you, Mrs., Miss, sorry, no Mrs., you're not married, Miss, and I give you 20 bucks. Now, here's the deal. How much do I have for the rest of you? Well, if I have $100, I've got 80 left, right? 80. That's not much. Not if I gave you 20. That's 20% of everything I got. So then I decide, okay, I've got to slow down here, right? So I'm going to give like, you know, five, five, get that out of the way, five, 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 five. Now I'm down to like 60 bucks left for all the rest. You see, I got a limited quantity. So now I'm going to go low. Like, I mean, sorry, $2, Now I got 50 rest for the left of you. And I've only dealt with like eight people. I mean, this is a problem. I've got a limited quantity. We think the same thing about God's love often. I know, I know. You, we, we don't say we do, but we do. Like, we think that for whatever reason, God loves us more than he loves a violent rapist sitting in a life in a prison with a life sentence on him. We somehow think in our arrogance that God loves us more than he loves that person. And because we think that, we actually miss God's love for us. And we miss God's love for those around us. God's love has never been dependent on what you do. It will, it will determine how much you enjoy God's love, but not how much he loves you. So instead, let me ask you a quick question. What, what does God see? I want to take the next five minutes and I want to show you, I don't want to call it a game because it's actually absolutely life and death. I want to show you what I do basically every day of my life now. What I want to see every time I see somebody. It's a very simple practice. I like to randomly choose somebody because if I don't randomly choose, it's awkward. So I'm going to start from the back and I'm going to go seven rows forward. And then I'm going to go from the middle and I'm going to go four people over. So um, seven rows. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four. This young man right here. All right. Uh, come here, buddy. Come here. What's, uh, don't tell me your name, actually, because uh, I don't need to know it for this. You're going to see. All right. So here's the deal. What we have right here is we have this precious young man, and, and the reality is I, I don't actually know where they're from. I, I don't know his name. I don't know his middle name. I don't know his last name. I don't know what he loves to do in life. I don't know what he likes to eat. But I want to suggest something to you. I may know more about him than he knows about himself. And this is what's crazy. So I want to just take the next few minutes. I want to tell you what I know about this guy. And you're going to look at him with a value you may have never looked at anybody with. Get ready. We're going to see what God sees when he sees this precious soul. All right, here we go. Three things. Here's the first thing I know about him. See this thing I'm holding, buddy? This thing is a cap that my grandma makes me. And he ma she makes it for me because, as you can see, God did not give me an abundance of hair, right? Okay? Now, when I was younger, I had blonde hair a lot like you and just about as much. But here's the thing. The first thing I know about you is this. It says in Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, that when you were still inside your mom, that he knit you together. Now, hang on. I got to explain why this is crazy. So going back to this, my grandma knits me these caps. But the thing about knitting, I don't actually know how to knit. All right. But I, I've watched her and I've watched many others. And, and when you knit, if you look at this hat, there's no mistakes in it. Right. Like it's actually like perfectly made. But when my grandma makes a mistake, she has to pull out the threads until she comes to the mistake. And then it stays together. Well, here's the thing. It says that God perfectly knit him and you together. If God knit you together, it means every 
bit, every detail of the design of this human being and you too was perfectly made by God, perfectly, like, like not a mistake. No, of course he's a sinner and I am too. We're born in sin, we're born in Adam's line. That, that, that's Romans 5 all the way, that's different. But as far as God's design, perfectly made. So when I stare at you, I'm like, that's what God wanted. That, that's what he wanted to create. Exactly you, your personality, your giftings, your talents, your passions. He wanted you. That's amazing. Wow. And then it says, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. So the first thing I know about this precious life right here is that God knit him together. And if my 87-year-old grandmother perfectly knits a hat, I guarantee you God Almighty doesn't make a mistake. That's the first thing I know. So already my, my view of this guy's changed. That's not where it stops. Now in Jeremiah 31.3, and I understand when we, when we look at who God's speaking to there, he's clearly speaking to his people, the children of Israel. But, but, but hang on, we see in 1 John that this truth carries over. So when I say it from Jeremiah, don't, don't, don't just say, oh, that's out of context. No, no, we can, we can see this all over the New Testament. What do we know about God's character and his love? Here's what I know about this young man right here. Jeremiah 31.3, he's loved with an everlasting love. What does this mean? All right, hold on. This is going to blow our minds a little bit, okay? But it's okay for us to hurt when we think about God's love. First thing, if God loves this guy with an everlasting love, someone over here, when did he start loving him? Do you think that's when it was? Before the foundation of the world. I want to say he never started loving him. He's always loved him. Like, always. Like, like, no, there wasn't a time he didn't love you. He literally has always loved you. God's eternal. Okay, well, this blows my mind now. I, I got, this is a treasure. Like, I got to really protect this kid. I mean, like, wow. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Everlasting, that kind of goes another direction too, right? You say, that's bad. Uh, eternal doesn't go directions. It just is. Okay, fine. But let's go the other direction anyway. When is God... Listen carefully. Don't answer quickly here. When is God going to stop loving him? Okay, but wait, wait, wait. What if this kid right here rejects Jesus Christ and says, I do not believe in the cross and the blood of Jesus, and he eternally is condemned at the great white throne judgment? And I pray that's not your life, brother. No, I'm serious. I say that with deep reverence. But what if he rejects Jesus Christ? He's still loved. He's separated from that love, but he's eternally loved. When I look at a soul, first thing I know is perfectly made. Second thing I know is eternally loved. Guys, I don't know about you. How can I not love you guys? Like, how can I look at you and not respect you? How can I look at you and not think, wow, you are seriously a treasure, but that's not all. There's one more thing that changes everything. Here's the third thing I know about him. And when I mention this third thing, buddy, like all of a sudden, I just want to say, wow, you're, you're so precious. Here we go. You ready for it? Here's the third thing I know about him. I still don't know his name. I still don't know where he's from, but here's what I know. The eternal God sent his only begotten son to this wicked world to die for this guy because he's that important. I don't know about you. 
how can I treat him with disrespect? How can I say an unkind thing to him? How can I devalue him to suggest that he's not worth anything or that he's not worth investing into? How can I look at any soul in the light of those three truths and even think for a minute that you're not eternally precious? You see, God says in this passage, he says, you don't, I mean, he says this in in his heart as far as how he expresses, you don't see what I see when I see people. You don't see scribes and Pharisees what I see when I see tax collectors and sinners because I see something so much more. You can have a seat. Think about this. Think about this is what God sees when he sees you. But we're not done. I'm almost done. Don't worry. But I'm not done. Because how does this all come together? Listen, let's pull it together with one more passage and then it'll just all come like a seamless uh, garment. So go to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. In Mark chapter 12, we have another story. I'm going to tell you the story, okay? So you can follow along so you know that I'm not making it up. But I'm going to tell you the story from verses 13 down to 17. Now in verse 13, we have two groups of people again. We've got these Pharisees, they're back for more action. And we've got the Herodians. Now you've got to understand something here, all right? The Pharisees hate the Herodians. The Herodians, you got it, hate the Pharisees. One is pro-Rome, one is pro-Israel. But they all hate somebody else more. Who? Uh, Herodians love the Romans. They all hate who? Jesus. So they're like, I hate you, you hate me, we hate Jesus. So let's work together. I got a plan. Let's go up to Jesus and let's ask him, Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because if he says, yeah, pay taxes. Well, then those guys over there are going to be ticked off. They're like, he's not the savior for us. But if he says, don't pay taxes. Well, we know what Herodians will do. Turn him into that tax collector right there and he'll get killed. So they got him. Jesus is practically dead. Just the story hasn't happened yet. So they go up to Jesus. Now look at their language they use. They flower it up, right? They're like, oh, teacher, we know that you are from God for nobody can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. You see, that's what they say. And then they're like, just one question. All right, it's just a little question. I mean, seriously, no big deal here. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, what does Jesus say? He says, who has a coin? And somebody's like, yeah, I I got one. Well, he's like, pull it out, pull it out. They pull out their coin. And and he asks them a question they all know the answer to. He says, whose image and inscription is on that coin? Everybody knows they're Caesar's coins, Caesar's face. Caesar owns the treasury. It's Caesar is the answer. So they say Caesar. And then what does Jesus say? He says, okay. Render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And look at verse 17. They all were astonished. And you're not. That means you're missing something. So hang on. Let's do this again. But watch out. We're not going to miss it again. What happens? Jesus is asked, should we pay tax or not? He says, give me a coin, a coin, a coin, a coin. Keep that in mind. A coin, a coin. So they pull out the coin. Whose image, 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 image. Whose image is on that coin? Coin, 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 coin. All right. They say Caesar. God says, okay, Caesar. I don't care about Caesar's image. 
Give it to whoever. Give it to Caesar. Don't give it to I mean, whatever you got to do. Just, I did not come for that coin. Listen, Genesis 1.27 says that you were created in the image of God. What woman having a coin and loses a coin? You, image of God, image, image, coin, coin. You are created in the image of God. What woman having a coin? Listen, you are God's coin. This is what he came to the world to get. He came to redeem his coins. You're his relationship. He doesn't care about the money of this world, the things of this world. Let Caesar have Caesar's stuff. Don't waste your life on that junk. Instead, he came for everything that has his image. And you have his image, 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 and you you get the point. You all have his image. When he looks at you, he says, this is what I came for. I did not come for political systems. I did not come for economic growth. I did not come for psychological help. I came for my bride. I came for the souls I died for. And you're worth everything to me. And that's why I'm going to a cross and I'm going to pay for it all. And all you have to do is put your faith in the one who loves you more than you love yourself. And his name is Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, today in 2018, this world is desperate. Suicide is going up. Depression has skyrocketed. Mankind is richer than ever and committing suicide faster than ever. And why is that? Because nothing with Caesar's image is going to satisfy. Tonight, here at Yosemite, I'm not telling you I have the answer. God gave us the answer. And the answer is someone, not something, and his name is Jesus Christ. Tonight, be saved. Tonight, have hope and peace and joy. Listen, Jesus doesn't give you peace, so to speak. He does, but that's not, that's not where I want to stop. It's not that he gives you joy. It's not that he gives you love. He is peace. He himself is our peace. He has broken down the wall of separation. You want peace? You want joy? You want hope? You want true love? It's not come to Jesus and get in and walk away. No, come into a relationship with God Through Jesus Christ, he is the source of it all. And there's nothing complicated about it. Let me tell you something about the gospel. Uh, uh, A man that I respect greatly said this. He said, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z. As my brother just mentioned, we preach the gospel to ourselves all the time. When I'm sitting around with my guy, the guys that travel with me, we'll sit down at lunch and I'll just stop the conversation. I'll say, Hey, will you just share the gospel with us? Hey, would you want to start with Moses this time? And he'll share that picture of Christ from Exodus onward. And we see how Christ is the one who delivered us out of our Egypt of sin. What's the point? The point is the gospel tonight is not just for those that have not accepted Jesus Christ. It's for those of us that have grown cold to the reality of the gospel. If you're sick of hearing the gospel, you're probably not saved. You probably got some form of religion and you thought that satisfied. You clearly are going to other wells. Tonight, I'm challenging you. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know that if tonight is your last night on earth, you're spending eternity with him? There's nothing complicated about it at all. It's that you need to confess that I need Jesus. I am his bride. He did come for me. And I say yes. Now, one last thing I have to lay out here because it's 2018 and we are in the generation of hashtag me too. Now, I don't say it as a joke. I say that honestly. And if you don't know what that is, then just stick with me here. You'll still get the point. In our world today, 
If I loved my wife now, but let's say she wasn't my wife, and I, I say I love her, and I say, will you marry me? And she says, no, I will not. And I say, then fine, I'm going to force it on you and force you to marry me. What would we all in this place call it? We'd call that abuse. And I would say, you're right. Why do you have a double standard with God? He offers you his love. He loves you eternally, but he's not going to force himself on you. You've got to say yes. If you don't, you'll be condemned eternally to hell. And get this, God's not the one sending you to hell. You chose to go. You chose to be separated from his presence eternally. Why? You said no. Don't blame it on God. He did everything for you. He's paid the price. It is finished. The grave is empty. Salvation is accessible. Intimacy is offered. It's there. When I stand before God one day, I don't mean in judgment. I mean standing with him. And I see some of you walk to the throne and if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you're gonna think this is a harsh statement. But when he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I'm gonna have to agree with him wholeheartedly because you said no. Tonight you can say yes. There's no magic words. There's no repeat after me. Just tell God, yes, I accept Jesus Christ as my savior. I, my faith is in him Give me eternal life. I want a relationship with you. And he gives you his Holy Spirit. And if you already know Jesus Christ, how about being saved from being lukewarm? How about we walk out of here and we look at every soul the way God looks at every soul? Perfectly made, eternally loved, and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. I really don't know how the church can ever function as it used to when it sees what God sees. You are his coin. If the angels in heaven celebrate, how much more ought we? For we indeed are part of the redeemed. And let the redeemed say so. If you don't know Jesus Christ, please come talk to me. Come talk to somebody who knows him. Be saved tonight. Do not delay one more day. Today is the day of salvation because God loves you way too much to let this night go by. Let's pray. Father, your love never gets old. I, I, will, I will sing of your love forever. And even then, it'll be too short. And Lord, I'll never know how much you really love me because I'll never know what it costs you to pay for my salvation. But I want to say thank you. And tonight, I'm burdened that there may be, that there are souls here that have yet to actually say yes. Oh, they know. They got the answers. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. They just have never actually said yes. They've never actually surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. And if they die right now, they're, they're off to hell for eternity. And that's their choice. Lord, I ask tonight for salvation. I ask for repentance that turns around. I pray that others would love their soul as much as even I love their soul, let alone how much Jesus loves their soul. God, I just pray we'd wake up that we would realize life is short, eternity is forever, and this is the most important decision anyone will ever make. What am I going to do about the Christ? Only you can save. I can't change one person. So God, this is your work. It's spiritual. You do it. All for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.